we thank you for this. We pray as we open up your scriptures today from the pages of old that you would ignite our hearts with the reality of their inspiration as we see how the mark of the Spirit of God is all over your unscripturated word that it might encourage us. We pray according to Ephesians that the effect of the preaching of the word this day would root and ground us in the faith. That we, being rooted and grounded in Christ, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that we may be filled with all the fullness of God. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Praise the Lord. This morning, open your scriptures, if you would, to Psalm 85. This is a psalm of the sons of Korah that comes to us in our series as we move one psalm a month through the book of the Psalter. This is also a community psalm, if you will, and it has quite a few parallels to Psalm 80, a particular concept that is recurring in these two psalms that our attention will be drawn to in the course of this message, I trust. And is the idea of revival, restoration, of giving new life, of returning to or turning to the Lord, and the Lord turning to us. In the course of Psalm 80, four times, or three times, the translation of this concept of returning to God is is, uh, listed this way, or is written this way, Restore us, O God, let your face shine that we may be saved. Verse 7, Psalm 80, restore us, O God of hosts, let your face shine that we may be saved, he says again. Verse 19, restore us, O Lord of hosts, let your face shine that we may be saved. This is, if you will, the chorus of Psalm 80, a turning of God's people to the Lord and a turning of the Lord to God's people insomuch as his face would be pleased to shine or his countenance, as the word says in other places, would be lifted upon us. That there would be a sweet face-to-face, if you will, communion. There's one more reference in Psalm 80. Turn again, verse 14, O God of hosts, look down from heaven and see and have regard for this vine. Vine, meaning the people of the Lord, a picture of the people of God. To this theme, to this main idea, the sons of Korah return in Psalm 85. The title of this morning's message is Revival Cry. What does the cry for revival sound like from the scriptures themselves? What does this desire for a returning to the Lord and a turning of the Lord to us look like and sound like in the scriptures? Psalm 80 and Psalm 85 both answer that question. Thus, the aim of this morning's message is to inspire and direct us, His people, toward a biblical passion for revival. To inspire and to direct us toward a biblical passion for revival. With your scriptures open to Psalm 85, would you stand with me out of reverence for God's word this morning and listen as the word of God is proclaimed in your hearing this day. The title of this morning's psalm, Psalm 85, is as follows. To the choir master, a psalm of the sons of Korah, the holy word of God continues, verse 1. Lord, you are favorable to your land. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of your people. You covered all their sin, Selah. You withdrew all of your wrath. You turned from your hot anger. Restore us again, O God of our salvation, 
and put away your indignation toward us. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your steadfast love, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. Verse 8, let me hear what God the Lord will speak, for he will speak peace to his people, to his saints. But let them not turn back to folly. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him, that glory may dwell in our land. Verse 10, steadfast love and faithfulness meet. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Faithfulness springs up from the ground, and righteousness looks down from the sky. Yes, the Lord will give what is good, and our land will yield its increase. Righteousness will go before Him and make His footsteps away. This is the Word of God. You may be seated. A revival cry from the sons of Korah in our text, in our psalm today. As I read this psalm, I reminisce a little over the course of my own history in the Christian faith. Since I can remember, the evangelical church in America has been interested in one way or another in revival. There is a recurring desire and appeal for God to bring to life again what has died or grown cold. There has been a steady drumbeat for a widespread move of God in our land ever since I can remember. For some time, no doubt, before I was born, that cry was echoed, I'm sure, within the church. What is revival? Revival, simply stated, is to bring to life again, re meaning again, a vival, a Uh, of course, speaking to life, revive. It speaks to a calling back to life that which has grown cold, stagnated, grown corrupt, or in fact died. In a biblical context, in the context of Psalm 85, we could expand or be more precise in our definition of revival perhaps with the following phrase. Revival is a reordering of lives and affections according to the terms of covenant by the power of the Holy Spirit. Revival, according to Psalm 85, perhaps could be stated again as follows. It's a reordering of lives and affections. That is, uh, the lifestyle that we live, the decisions that we make, the direction, the course that our actions pursue. It's a reordering of this and our affections, our desires, our deepest soul longings, the things that we take joy in. Reordering of our lives and affections according to the terms of covenant. Of course, the terms of covenant would be the foundation, the basis for relationship between God and man by the power of the Holy Spirit. Ultimately, revival is a work of a sovereign God. And it is sparked in the hearts of His own by the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit Himself. Revival movements through the centuries have come in and out of vogue or style in the Christian community. I guess I'm old enough now to have lived through several variations of this phenomenon. And one thing I've noticed, and perhaps an error, perhaps a point of correction that Psalm 85 could speak to, is apparent as we look at different movements, perhaps in your own observation and experience and mine. It seems that methods employed by the church, broadly speaking, to call back to life what has grown lethargic often assume that we must do something extraordinary if we have any hopes for extraordinary results. Extraordinary efforts are required for extraordinary results. That would seem to be the logic there. Well, this is interesting and 
uh, a point I think that we sometimes assume and we could easily go astray. We must remember that the extraordinary work of revival is a sovereign work of the Lord alone. And more often than not, the ordinary means of grace, if you will, that which God ordinarily calls the church to be faithful to is, in fact, sufficient means for Him to bless, to accomplish revival. And so we don't need anything new and improved, that is to say, over God's prescriptive means of grace, that which He has given us to be faithful unto. If we are faithful to Him, it is at His point of sovereign choosing that He is pleased to ignite uh, something of a powerful dispersion or acceptance or a greater result from the proclamation of the gospel. Our duty is to be faithful. His is to, as He wills, uh, use the message of His proclaimed Word to His glorious ends. Now, this other approach of doing something extraordinary and embracing other schemes, mechanisms, or things of man or creative ideas to try to inspire revival can lead to a dangerously unbiblical hysteria. And it can also endorse and sometimes practice unbiblical means. And so Psalm 85 calls us to a biblical approach to correct these tendencies, to seek the advent of revival among the people of God the way the psalmist models for us in Psalm 85. Now there is desperation in the tone and in the context of the author's appeal He is deeply concerned that the people of God be reignited to the core and the passion of their faith. But this psalmist's plea, while he expresses it in this kind of impassioned tone, he does not stray from biblical means as he does so. The steps that he promotes towards revival are according to the sovereign direction of the only one who can effect revival in the first place, that is Yahweh Himself, the Lord. The passage of Scripture available to the author, you might ask yourself, sometimes I ask myself this question, what was in the back of the author's mind, what might have inspired the sons of Korah, as it were, uh, to write this psalm out as they were meditating on the Scripture that was available to them? And students of the Scriptures, commentators have noted perhaps the most probable candidate for this is Exodus 34, 6 through 11 or 5 through 10, as we recited this morning in our worship text. And this is the passage where God delivers the law and the terms of covenant to His people and then states that His steadfast love will be extended to His own and He will provide means of sin covering and atonement and His faithfulness will extend to multi-generations. And only upon the people's disregard, disobedience, and belittling of this promise will the opposite be true. They will be cursed and that generational ill will be passed on to the next generation. And so we see this promise of steadfast love according to the terms of uh, of covenant accomplished by a sovereign God alone, and also the specifics of how that looks in the life and the livelihood of the gathered people of God. Here in Exodus 34 are the original promises and conditions of spiritual vitality they're clearly proclaimed, they're revealed according, according to an uh, infallible standard, and to this standard our author makes his case for revival. This righteousness is a righteousness he calls the people to return to, the righteousness revealed in the word and law of our God. And so his heart cry is uh, 
comes forth in the context of the Scriptures as he knew them. With this introduction, let me give you a heading to identify or to uh, separate, categorize our text into four sections. The heading is this, the pursuit of revival in Psalm 85 is marked by the following. Number one, redemption recounted. A recounting of the redemptive work of God in the history of God's people. Redemption recounted. Secondly, the pursuit of revival in Psalm 85 is marked by renewal requested. A desire, an entreating, a plea, an appeal to the Lord to renew, to revive the people of God. Thirdly, responsibility acknowledged, both corporate and in the example of verse 8, even personal. A personal responsibility associated with the request for revival. And then fourthly, reconciliation proclaimed. There's a bold proclamation, a, a publishing, a heralding of the good news of what this revival looks like and what, therefore what the people of God can expect when their prayers are answered. So let us look at our text according to this outline, shall we? The pursuit of revival in Psalm 85 is first marked by redemption recounted. Back to verse 1 through 3. Notice the following, Lord, our author speaks, you were favorable, he sings, to your land. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of your people. You covered their sin. You withdrew all your wrath. You turned from your hot anger. Now here we have uh, several verbs that are listed, that are associated with salvation. In other words, the in a parallel form, in recurring words, adding uh, depth and dimension to the proclamation of hope for the future, of salvation for the people of God, and in recounting the work of redemption among them, uh, the author of Psalm 85 declares that the Lord has been favorable to His people. The first verb of salvation used, Lord, you had favor to your land, or you were favorable to your land. And land, of course, refers to the context, the dwelling of the people of God, and it incorporates those who dwell there, as if to say the habitation of you with your people, of you and your people, the Lord uh, extended favor to His land, the realm of His kingdom. The second verb associated with salvation, not only did the Lord favor His people, but secondly, it says, you restored the fortunes of Jacob. Restoration is in view. The Lord favors His people. The Lord restores His people. He puts back together that which was broken. He mends that which is torn apart and destroyed by sin. He causes the sinews, the bones, the flesh, the organs, the blood, the nervous system of the body in the analogy or in, in a physical analogy to be restructured. And we'll see this later as we touch upon a cross-reference in Ezekiel 37 where the Lord brings back together what has been reduced to so much carbon and rotting and decayed bones. Nothing man could do could resurrect a body, yet God can restore the fortunes of Jacob. A third action verb associated with salvation, forgive. You forgave the iniquity of your people. There is no favor extended, there is no restoration possible without the forgiveness of sins, without the without the uh, covering over, without the uh, washing away, that incidentally covering is the next verb, 
without dealing with the problem of sin, there is no restoration. There is no favor. There is no redemption. There is no revival. You had favor on your people. You restored them. You forgave them. You forgave the iniquity of your people. And the fourth verb in verses 1 and 2, you covered all their sin. And this picture is so poignant, is it not? Now, in our Genesis study, the picture of covering is introduced on the first pages of the history of man. There is a covering that Adam and Eve seek in their own desperation and their own works righteousness, if you will, to take fig leaves and to cover their shameful nakedness, the exposure of their sin and their uh, rebellion and condemnation as they stand in the presence of holy God now as sinners. They seek to cover by their own doing, grabbing at fig leaves of their own imagination and of their own ambition, and this fails. Does it provide for them confidence in the presence of the Lord? No. In spite of their attempts to cover their own sin, they run in fear. Why? Because they are naked and exposed and nothing they can do is sufficient to render them presentable before a holy God, not when the issue is a matter of the heart. But surely we see in the book of Genesis that by a sovereign act of sacrifice, the Lord Himself provides for them skins. This is a picture of blood that must be shed, may I submit, as a remission for the sins. There must be a just penalty taken by another in substitute in order for sins to be covered. Of course, a picture of the Lamb of God to come. The Lamb Christ alone who would be sacrificed and slaughtered and whose blood would provide a sufficient covering His imputed robes of righteousness to us so that we might be presentable, no longer naked, in the presence of a holy God. And this is the covering that is spoken of in symbolic form in the Old Testament, in the ceremonial law, in the sacrificial system, in the promises, and in the prefigurings all the way back to the book of Genesis. And it must be accomplished in order for redemption to be possible, favor, restoration, forgiveness, and covering for salvation verbs. Not only this, but in recounting redemption and the power thereof, and again, this is to illustrate the scope of revival and the scope of redemption, we see other, uh, we see other references in these first few verses in Psalm 85. We see references to place, provision, and people. Lord, you are favorable to your land. There is a place, a realm. In this picture language, this is, in that, this is the idea of a habitation for God, a dwelling with Him and His people. This, of course, is associated with the idea of Zion, which we have mentioned numerous times. The Bible speaks of a place, a dwelling, an economy, a relational environment, a community, a sanctuary, where God and his, all His holiness can commune with man in spite of his sinfulness because a covering has been supplied such that this new realm of God's dwelling with man is a reality. This is the place, the place associated with redemption, which is restored. Secondly, you restored the fortunes of Jacob. There is provision. There are riches associated. There is a fullness. There is an overflowing well of wealth that rushes into the coffers, if you will, into the bank account, if you will, of those who possess a relationship with the King of kings and Lord of lords. We mentioned in the book of Genesis the picture of riches from the very beginning of Eden. 
There is an overflowing bounty that is pictured in the plants that spring forth and yield fruit of every imaginable kind, delicious to the last tree, I'm sure. Not only this, though, the river that splits into four, along its banks we see sparkling jewels, even in the picture of as yet uncultivated uh, un, uh, Eden, where bdellium and gold and onyx stone and so forth are uh, run along the streams of God's will, uh, pictured in, those, in this headwaters of dynamic vitality referenced in the book of Genesis that are associated with riches and bounty, and wealth and provision. And this picture of wealth and provision goes all the way through the scriptures. This is not a trivial materialism. Materialism, the desire for wealth, the worship of money, is a cheap substitute for what is truly valuable and beyond compare, rare, glorified, beautiful, and resplendent in its power and majesty. The things that the Bible associates with wealth are things like the blood of Jesus, which Peter says is precious beyond all compare. The wealth and riches of the place of God's dwelling with man are pictured in the foundation stones underneath the new Jerusalem, each one a precious gem representing the foundational work of God that only He could accomplish. The rarest of all, uh, the rarest of all works indeed, how God establishes His people and the wealth and the overflowing beauty and the treasure that is associated with this place is such that even the streets are paved with gold. Thus, there is a restoration, there is restoration of the fortunes of Jacob, that is, the people of God, wealthy and prosperous again, pictured all through the Scriptures, primarily in this spiritual sense, but it has application to other realms as well. And finally, you forgave the iniquity of your people. There is a people in view, a particular called out elect ones by God's sovereign choosing on, upon whom He has willed to dispense His steadfast love and grace, not by virtue of anything they bring to the table, but by His sovereign, electing, predestining power. And this is true in picture form all the way back to Deuteronomy 7. It wasn't because you were rich, famous, wealthy, smart that I called you out. So many words, but you were least among the peoples, yet to glorify Himself, the Lord chooses the weak and foolish as His messengers, as His people, as His agents that He will use to proclaim His glories. And so as the author, Psalm 85, recounts redemption, he emphasizes the activity of God in salvation by those action verbs we talked about. He also emphasizes the scope of redemption from place to provision to people, God is to be glorified because He has the power to redeem all of these. And thirdly, under redemption recounted, in the original language, the Hebrew gives us a word for turning. You withdrew all your wrath, verse 3, you turned from your hot anger. This is absolutely key and central to understanding revival, is this language, this concept of turning. There are three turnings in Psalm 85, that is, in the original language, uh, I think the Hebrew is pronounced something like shub, is the word, and it means to turn or to reorient, to reposition oneself or have oneself repositioned. And in this first kind of turning, this use of the Hebrew shub, it is a turning, a repositioning, a reorienting of the disposition of the Lord from one of judgment to one of mercy. 
from one of condemnation to one of grace, from one of wrath to one of steadfast love. In other words, revival happens when the first turning takes place and other turnings follow. And the first turning is this, you withdrew all your wrath, you turned from your hot anger. It is the turning of the Lord from His right and prerogative to display His glory in the just condemnation and destruction of a people in their sin, His turning from wrath to grace, to choosing to show Himself glorious, merciful, and kind and steadfast in His loveliness to a people by extending to them the message of redemption and salvation by having favor upon them, by restoring them, by forgiving them, by covering all their sins. In order for any revival to take place, this turning is necessary, a turning from wrath to grace. And is first and foremost a turning in God Himself. It is a sovereign move of God. In Psalm 85, this plea, this cry for revival, this pursuit of the same begins with the gospel. This is the gospel, brothers and sisters, and it is clear as can be, even though it's in old covenant form. Favor, restoration, forgiveness, covering, and a turning from wrath to grace. This is the first step, the foundation of revival. It is where, a, where new life begins. It is where restoration is possible. It is where redemption is to be found and salvation is to be grounded in a turning of the Lord from wrath to grace in His sovereign work of redemption. So that's redemption recounted. Secondly, the pursuit of revival in Psalm 85 is marked by a request for renewal, a solicitation, an imploring of the Lord, an entreating, a begging, an adjuring of the Lord to bring a renewal, a revival to His people. And here we have in the next verse, verse 4, the second turning. So I mentioned to you the first is a turning from wrath to grace by God Himself. And the second kind of turning is as follows. We read in verse 4. Restore us again, O God, of our salvation, and put away your indignation toward us. Now this turning, uh, the same root word again, shub, in the Hebrew is used in verse 3 as it is in verse 4. Even though the translation in the English is somewhat different, the idea is parallel. The Lord turned from His wrath and His hot anger to grace. And then the second turning is, Lord, turn us from our sin to put away uh, our uh, old life unto you. And this, in the New Testament context, is repentance. It's that 180 degree turn. It is an entire, a complete reversal, change of heart and mind. And this, again, is a work of the Lord. Turn yourself from wrath towards, towards us to grace toward us and restore us again. Turn us again toward you, O God of our salvation. Now, uh, this is a quorum Deo situation before the face of the Lord. In order for the face of the Lord to be turned to the face of man, God must uh, position himself as gracious, and man must have his sins atoned for. When man is made holy and God extends grace, communion between a holy God and us as his creatures is possible. 
This is the glorious hope and this is the glorious promise of redemption and salvation. It is a turning of God to us and it's a turning of us from our sin to God. And in so doing, it is a restoration of that fellowship where the countenance of the Lord can be lifted upon us. Now, the high priestly prayer of Aaron comes into view here. Uh, The Lord bless you and keep you and make his face to shine upon you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace and be gracious unto you. The language is in that prayer, in that poetic uh, benediction that we often use, is that the Lord would turn from wrath to grace and that he would move his people to turn from sin to trusting in him, salvation by grace through faith alone in what God has done. And in so doing, we look into the face of God as it were, and we find him smiling at us through Jesus Christ, our Savior. His countenance is one of friendship, of love, of steadfast love and communion upon this restorative work. And this is the kind of turning that is associated with revival. It's the second kind of turning. Now, this is the kind of turning that Ezekiel writes about in uh, chapter 37, and I referenced this before. Perhaps we don't have time to go there, but you remember the story of the dry bones, do you not? In the vision, Ezekiel sees a field, a killing field, if you will, strewn with random disconnected bones, bleached in the sunshine, decaying. They're the last of the carbon form of the body to disappear into the dirt just by virtue of the calcium calcium and minerals from which the bones are made and so forth. And all hope is lost to the human eye. There's no engineer that's going to come and to assemble and to, even if a paleontologist can figure out, you know, which bones belong to which skeleton, by the time he's done, all he has done is rearranged the bones on the ground. He has done nothing to bring them back to life. However, as Ezekiel prays in his vision, or as he perceives in his vision, there is a wind, there is a movement of the Spirit of God that is uh, present in this, and, and pretty soon the bones are connected sinew, tissue, muscle, blood vessels, and continents of mind are, are rush into them, and there is a revival indeed. There is a complete and utter restoration. There is a regeneration. There is a resurrection that takes place in this picture of the spiritual reality of the kind of renewal that is celebrated and prayed for in Psalm 85 and that is prophesied of in Ezekiel 37. Now, as we go on uh, through the, the second section, verses 4 through 7, where renewal is requested. There is a request that God would withhold something from His people, and there is also a dual request that He would extend something else. That certain things would be withheld, and certain things would be extended. <coughs> Excuse me, notice again verse 4. Restore us again, O God, of our salvation, and put away your indignation toward us. So withhold your indignation. Will you be angry with us forever? Withhold is the idea here, your anger from your people. Will you prolong your anger to all generations? And then we see a shift, verse 6, will you not revive us again? Give us new life so that your people may rejoice in you. And now in order for this to happen, certain things must be extended. Verse 7, show us your steadfast love, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. That is, again, in summary, withhold your indignation, withhold your anger, but then parallel to this and conversely, extend to us your steadfast love and grant us your salvation. This reference to steadfast love 
We've often referred to it as the gospel in a word in the Old Testament. It's the chesed in the Hebrew. It's this covenant-keeping loyalty. It's God making a promise to himself to bless his people and upholding that bargain, upholding that uh, arrangement, that relationship in every necessary way unto uh, and forever. This is the covenant-keeping love of God. This is the loyalty and faithfulness of God himself when he enters into a promise. When he swears uh, upon his own hurt that he might accomplish something, will he ever fail? Certainly not. So long as he is God, he will retain, he will uh, fulfill every one of his covenants and promises. And this idea is bound up in the concept of his hased or steadfast love. Extend to us your covenant-keeping faithfulness, O Lord. And in so doing, grant us your salvation. There is also a purpose embedded in this renewal request. Revive us. Revive us why, you might ask. The answer to this question appears as well in verse 6. Will you not revive us again and that your people, so a purpose, that your people may rejoice in you? We need revival in this land. Why do we need revival in this land? Well, most people, most of us may fill in the answer to that question uh, because of how bad things seem to be getting, how much better things may have been at a certain time, or the future is threatened by the current state of affairs. This trajectory of moral depravity is not sustainable. Therefore, we need revival. And may I submit to you, as we justify the need for revival on these type of grounds, if we go no further than this, we justify the need for revival for our own benefit alone, for our benefit alone. And though this is true in as far, as far as it goes, it is not the ultimate purpose for a revival. The ultimate revival cry is that the Lord might be glorified, that His people may rejoice in Him again. What does the psalmist desire? He desires that Psalm 85 would be sung with fervor, and with sincerity, and in spirit, and in truth, by throngs, by multitudes. He desires that those who are the called people of God would turn from their folly and lift their voices, crying out to Him as the only source of favor, restoration, forgiveness, and covering. That they would cry out in repentance, turning from their sin and turning to the Lord and praying that on account of His steadfast love and grace, He would turn His countenance, lift up His face upon them. And in this, there would be a mighty, a mighty representation from the people of God of their desperate need and this collective adoration of the only source and power to accomplish the answer to this prayer. Psalm 85, as it were, will be sung by throngs, by multitudes in the future. It is sung in our hearts as we read these words and resonate with their truth. And God has answered the prayer of the psalmist by joining with the heart of the author here, those who desire to see the Lord's glory manifest, to see His work accomplished in our lives, to see the fruit of salvation take root and foothold in our lives, in our land. And that we might join with us a people called forth from every tribe, tongue, and nation one day. And as a voice of mighty waterfalls, join in singing His praises forever and ever. So this renewal that's requested involves a turning from our sin. It involves a withholding of what we deserve and extending of what we do not. 
It's a mercy and grace, and it's for the purpose of glorifying the Lord. That voices might join in similar song across history and across His land that God might be glorified once again. Thirdly, pursuit of revival in Psalm 85. It's marked by redemption recounted, renewal requested, and thirdly, responsibility acknowledged. Listen, let me hear what God the Lord will speak. This is verse 8. Let me hear what God the Lord will speak, for He will speak peace to His people, to His saints, but let them not turn back to folly. Surely His salvation is near to those who fear Him, that glory may dwell in our land. Now, in the poetry, there's a progression of pronouns. Um, In my family, during family worship, we play the stop game. Uh, The stop game is, is real simple. I give the kids a word and I say, when you hear this word, say stop. And then I begin to read the scripture. Uh, Kids, do you want to play the stop game this morning? All right. So let's let's look at some pronouns in Psalm 85. So the word is you. When you hear me read the word you, first one to hear it, shout stop. Okay, you guys ready? Here we go. Lord, you were favorable to... Good. The first reference right in the beginning... You, speaking to the Lord, was favorable to your land. Let's continue. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. Ah, that's the second one. God was favorable to his land. He restored the fortunes of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity, good, of your people. You covered all their sin. Nice, quick. Someone was quick. That's number four. You withdrew all your... Ah, five. Good job. Uh, You turned from your hot... You guys got them all. You're awesome. That is six references to the pronoun you. You guys did excellent. Now, why so many references in such a short amount of space? It's because the focus is on the Lord. The orientation of the heart that is desperate for revival focuses his attention first on the Lord, but then there's a progress. So we go from you to us. Okay, second word, uh, young people, in the stop game is us. If you hear me say the word us, say stop. Restore us again. Good job. O God of our salvation. Uh, Nope, not yet. And put away your indignation toward us. Good. So how many do we have so far, guys? Two. Very good. Verse six, five. Will you be angry with us forever? How many? Three. Will you prolong your anger to all generations? No. Will you not revive us again? Good. What's that? Is that number three or four? Four. That your people may rejoice in you. Show us your steadfast... Good job. Five. And grant us your salvation. How many? How many us's? Six. So we have six you's. And six us's. Great job, by the way, young people on the stop game. So if you guys want to use that um, for a little chaotic family worship uh, time, you're welcome to uh, adopt that game. So here we have this progression. We go from you, an acknowledgement of the Lord, to us, an acknowledgement of us. In light of who you are and what you've done, we, the corporate people, acknowledge our position, our desperate need for you. But then there's a third pronoun that's introduced in verse 8. Let me hear what God the Lord will speak. So we've gone to you, to us, to me. Now this is important because responsibility is acknowledged in the quest on the pursuit of revival. 
Notice, it is not just a corporate responsibility, but it is also personal. The author and the reader takes personal account of his own soul, and he uh, should be the first to repent if he is going to take steps toward this vision for revival. How many times have you complained or heard others complain about how horrible our culture is? Oh my word, I can't imagine raising kids in our world today. How many people have told me that? A lot, because I have a lot of kids. And, and, you know, it seems a formidable environment to raise good, sound, healthy kids when the world seems to be going to hell in a handbag all the time. And so you hear that. How many, how many people said, oh, if you look at the coarsening culture, uh, even through our media, you know, words that would never show up in a daily newscast are now uh, featured, it seems, nightly. And, oh, man, culture is getting so bad. Or we complain uh, the quality of education is decreasing and uh, the, in, the infidelity in the hookup culture where people care less about marriage and more about themselves and care little about the consequences of their sin. It seems to be more and more prevalent. Well, this is a responsibility of a type, but it's an us responsibility. It's a, it's a deferring of responsibility. It's looking at the culture around us, and that's easy for us to do. But Psalm 85 reminds us that we have a personal responsibility. We shouldn't only complain or see what's wrong around us. This can be a form of self-righteousness and self-justification if we're not careful. We are called to search our own hearts. Let me hear what God the Lord will speak. The Pharisees are whitewashed tombs. They care about the outside, but they do not look within. If they did, they would see dead man's bones like Ezekiel's vision. The Pharisees, had they looked inside, if they had taken the me pronoun seriously, they would have realized that they were in dire need of the Spirit of God to blow across the dead bones of their spiritual condition to put them back together again. So when the church echoes her revival cry from Psalm 85, she looks for ways that she can repent, turn from her sin, change her life in accordance with the Lord, and repent of her folly. Let them not turn back to folly, we see in the context as well. The church of Jesus Christ are identified as saints who listen to the Word of God. Let me hear what God the Lord will speak, for He will speak peace to His people, to His saints. In the Hebrew, I'm told the, this word for saint is a derivative of the word for steadfast love, has said. So what are saints according to Psalm 85? They are holy and godly ones, as they are the steadfastly loved ones. Saints are the steadfastly loved ones. And as such, that mark of God's steadfast love appreciated and their heart and soul manifests itself in turning to the Lord, in listening to His Word, and searching their heart for ways that they fall short and repenting accordingly. There is a third kind of turning in this third section of responsibility acknowledged in verses 8 and 9. This third kind of turning is again in verse 8, let them not turn back to folly. Surely His salvation is near to those who fear Him, that glory may dwell in our land. This third kind of, t- of turning is apostasy. It's falling away. It's uh, foolishly or indulging the foolishness of former life patterns, having tasted of the joys of covenant blessing. Let me not turn back. Let them not turn back to their folly. Let us not 
uh, embrace this third kind of shub or turning, as it were, apostasy, falling away from one's professed faith, indulging the foolishness of former life patterns, having tasted of the joys of covenant blessing. Brothers and sisters, return often frequently to the gospel. If you ever hear the atoning work of Jesus Christ waning in the proclamation from this pulpit, you have permission to come to me and tell me to return to the gospel. It is my responsibility and yours to keep placarded in front of us, first and foremost in our attention and affections, the work of Jesus Christ the sovereign work of redemption, the fact that His salvation is near those who fear Him. Those who fear Him do not lose the fear of what it would be like to die in our trespasses and sins. Those who fear the Lord do not lose the fear, that horrific thought of standing at Mount Sinai when God is revealed in His judgmental power in this firestorm, earthquake, lightning, and trumpeting voice and not have your sins covered over. And then we move from that fear to this great relief and honoring and revering the Lord because He has supplied, He has provided that covering in Jesus Christ, our Lord. Surely His salvation is near to those who fear Him, that glory may dwell in our land. So so we have uh, three so far. Um, Marks of revival pursued in Psalm 85, redemption recounted, Renewal requested, responsibility acknowledged, and let's go to the final one this morning, reconciliation proclaimed, verses 10 through 13. Steadfast love and faithfulness meet. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Faithfulness springs up from the ground. Righteousness looks down from the sky. Yes, the Lord will give what is good and our land will yield its increase. Righteousness will go before Him and make His footsteps away. Reconciliation is proclaimed. The good news, the gospel is published, it's heralded, it's sounded, it's broadcast, it's trumpeted in Psalm 85. Uh, Shame on those who have more of the revelation of God, namely us today, of what this looks like, like in its perfect fulfillment in Jesus Christ, who do not match, if not increase, match, if not magnify, the proclamation of the gospel of Psalm 85. We should be motivated to proclaim unequivocally, unapologetically, and boldly the fact that steadfast love and faithfulness have met. Where have they met? They have met in the face of Jesus Christ and His countenance turned upon us. They have met at the cross which satisfied the terms of righteousness and therefore purchased the ability to extend peace. There's a sort of literary communion. There's a sort of coming together of things in this message here at the end. If you notice, verses 1 through 3 of Psalm 85 focus much on uh, righteousness. Um, You were favorable uh, to your land. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of your people. You covered their sin all necessary conditions of righteousness. You withdrew all your wrath. You turned from your hot anger. The psalmist recounts the Lord preserving for himself, separating for himself, rendering sacred, uh, sanctifying for himself a righteous people. But then he pleads for peace. Verses 4 through 7, restore us again, O God of our salvation. Put away your indignation toward us. Do not be angry with us forever. We seek peace with you, O Lord. We know that we do not stand, we stand right now worthy of your anger and worthy of your indignation. But please, Lord, answer our cry for revival so we might turn to you and you to us that we might have peace. Revive us again so we might rejoice in you. Show us your steadfast love and your salvation. 
So how is it possible that righteousness and peace would come together? To kiss one another, as it were, to coexist in perfect harmony. How is it possible that steadfast love, the grace and mercy of the Lord extended, and faithfulness or truth, as it is sometimes translated, can meet? It is possible in the cross of Jesus Christ alone. The cross of Jesus Christ, because on that cross, the righteous demands of the law were satisfied when He took upon His flesh the payment that we deserved in our sin. And because that righteous demands of the law were satisfied, He was a sufficient atonement and could extend to us the steadfast love, could extend to us reconciliation, peace. This was prophesied, was it not, saints? Think of Isaiah 53, the chastisement of our peace was upon Him, His wounds. The cost of peace, of reconciliation, the cost of reunion, the cost of communion with the Lord was satisfied in His work, taking the just demands of the law in His own flesh on Calvary. And so this is prophesied, this is pictured all the way back in Psalm 85. Steadfast love and faithfulness meet. Righteousness and peace kiss each other in Christ. Faithfulness, he goes on, springs up from the ground. There is an organic and uh, a growth that is pictured here as if the nation, the ground, the land, the realm, the environment blooms afresh with what the seeds of redemption planted now coming to full flowering. And righteousness looks down from the sky. Heaven meets earth and righteousness and faithfulness coming together. And we know in the prophecies that John sees in the future that heaven will come to earth so to speak, in the new heavens and new earth. And when this event finally ushers in all that Jesus died to redeem, we see this faithfulness springing up from the ground, the remade earth, as it were, reconstituted, redeemed fully and finally in the complete scope, place, people, and land, or land, fortunes, and people. And we see heaven come down, as it were, and the place of God's dwelling with man perfectly and finally satisfied beyond anything that Eden could boast. Now, in this future, faithfulness springs up from the ground. Righteousness looks down from the sky. Steadfast love, faithfulness, righteousness, and peace all coexist because of Christ our Lord. This is a message that must be proclaimed, as I said, unapologetically, unequivocally, and boldly. Now, there's an application in our day. These days, more popular preaching often takes the form of asking probing questions or initiating a conversation. I've often heard pastors say, I'm just trying to start the wheels turning in my congregation. I'm just trying to ask probing questions. I'm just trying to steer them to and invite uh, deeper thoughts into the cognitive processes of their brain. If you look out in culture, a lot of times Christians are timid and they may feel, the, uh, feel compelled to defend their faith or to uh, defend themselves against false charges and say, you know, that's really not what I mean and so forth and so on. All of these things may have their time and place, but let me tell you, the foremost duty of the church of Jesus Christ, and especially its gospel heralds, is to proclaim. Now, proclamation is stating the truth unequivocally, unapologetically, and boldly. It is this, and for example, in the cross of Jesus Christ alone, steadfast love and faithfulness meet. Righteousness and peace come together. You can have peace with God and your sins atone in Jesus Christ alone, period, full stop. And we make no apologies. We don't soft pedal the truth of the gospel when gospel heralds are doing their due diligence and fulfilling their gospel duty. 
The word of God must be proclaimed. And if it's not, if it will not be proclaimed by its gospel heralds, those who are called to do so, even you echoing as much in your own lives, what do the scriptures say? The rocks will cry out and the trees will scream because this message will not be suppressed or silenced. Join the message from the, the psalmist from Psalm 85. Join those who against the pressures of culture, even today, are willing to suffer marginalization for the sake of Christ by declaring boldly, unequivocally, and unapologetically that Christ alone saves. It is is His gospel that must be heralded. It is Him and Him alone who can establish steadfast love, faithfulness, righteousness, and peace. You'll notice the fruitfulness of the effect of the gospel being proclaimed As revival takes root and foothold, it springs forth into fruit of steadfast love, faithfulness, righteousness, and peace. And these four categories, of course, correspond to the work of redemption accomplished by Christ alone in verses 1 and 2, favor, restoration, forgiveness, and covering. So here we have it, gospel bookended in Psalm 85, beginning and end. This is the role of the herald to proclaim as much. Jesus and John the Baptist were both fulfillments of Psalm 85. John the Baptist was Elijah to come, and he modeled in his preaching, and Jesus even more so, the preaching of the true kingdom, the message, the gospel of the true kingdom, fulfilling Psalm 85. Notice a fourth pronoun in verse 13. Righteousness will go before him and make his footsteps away. Who do you suppose him refers to? Who do you suppose this fourth pronoun refers to? May I suggest in its ultimate fulfillment, in its highest form, in its holiest application, this is a messianic pronoun. Righteousness will, be, will go before Jesus Christ and make his footsteps away. The proclamation of the Lamb to come was echoed by John the Baptist. He went before declaring, repent. It was a baptism of repentance that he proclaimed because righteousness must precede the coming of the Messiah And so the heralding of the gospel went forward, paving the way, as it were, for Christ to step into this world as fully God and fully man. And as it were, in this plan, this providence of God, uh, John the Baptist, as we know him, made made a way for the one to follow, Jesus Christ. And in a certain sense, we are called to do the same. Proclaim the message of the kingdom come until such time as the kingdom is fully consummate and realized in our experience today. Will you proclaim righteousness? Will you join in your life and in your affections with the call of Psalm 85 to recalibrate your mind, your soul, your heart, your desires to that which corresponds to revival, to redemption recounted, requesting God to bring new life, taking responsibility for yourself and for others and to proclaim the ground of reconciliation? If and when you do, you will be echoing the heart of Psalm 85 and joining that great lineage of gospel heralds that will continue until the second coming of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Let us close in prayer. Oh Lord, we thank you for the message of the gospel that rings true from page one to the last in your holy word. We thank you, Father, that you have given us so many reasons to praise your holy name and account of the revelation revealed in Holy Scripture, Lord. It's truly amazing. Open our eyes to see and ears to hear and mouth to speak of your great glories. Lord, help us to search and know ourselves, to see ourselves in light of truth, 
to turn from our own wickedness, to take responsibility of issues and areas where we have fallen short of your demands, and to look to Christ alone, whose favor and restoration, forgiveness and covering washes away our sins. As we do so, Lord, we pray that more would join us. We pray that the message of new life would, be, would fall upon ears that have been sovereignly opened by the Holy Spirit and that you would add to your church daily, as you did in the book of Acts, those who are being saved. We thank you, Lord, for the power of the gospel that is as effective today as it has been through all history. And we thank you that your blood will never lose its power. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.